to their subject. We found ourselves asking, why is history so disdained by so many, not just in the classroom, but by so many beyond school years, who look back and shudder at the boring, painful hours spent in classrooms? If ever there is a subject which should excite and enthrall us, it is our national epic. When examined through active history, otherwise dull questions of the past can have new life breathed into them. Could Lee have won? How would we as a nation be different today if he had? Remember that at any given moment, be it Gettysburg, the eve of D-Day, the stand of Reagan against communism, or our own confrontation with global terrorism, one decision by a leader might very well have made a profound difference on whether we as a nation would live or die, whether we ourselves would even be alive at this moment. And this was our departure point for Grant Comes East, the second book in our series on the Gettysburg Campaign. Our first book, Gettysburg, taking an active history approach, evaluated what might have happened if Lee had heeded General Longstreet's counsel and on the evening of July 1, 1863, abandoned the field of Gettysburg and swinging far to the south and east by a bold maneuver, placed the Army of Northern Virginia far into the rear of the Union lines. In one sense, the writing of this book was fairly easy once we got started. Gettysburg is perhaps the most intensely studied campaign in American history, and there was a wealth of information, stories, and vignettes for us to draw upon, even as we moved along an alternative path. We tried, as carefully as possible, to parallel reality for many individuals and to draw as well interesting alternatives such as General Armistead advancing this time in triumph and Colonel Chamberlain holding the critical flank, but this time in an impossible position to maintain. We end that novel with Lee triumphant, and there we closed our story. We had completed our first task, to look at Gettysburg in an alternate vision, but a far more fundamental question still remained. Could such a victory have ended the Civil War with a final Confederate triumph? Many in the past, when speculating on this question, assume a Confederate victory at Gettysburg would have ended the conflict. Perhaps the most famous is McKinley Cantor's delightful book, If the South Had Won the Civil War. He concludes that after a victory at Gettysburg, Jeb Stuart, several days later, marches up the steps of the White House and takes President Lincoln prisoner. It is a wonderful tale, but neglects the true historical facts. One of our tenets of active history is to adhere to the reality of the moment. The weather after Gettysburg was abysmal and profoundly impacted both sides. Torrential rains flooded rivers and washed out the dirt roads of that time. Such weather would have severely hampered a victorious Lee marching on Washington, slowing his advance to a crawl, and thus granting precious time for the very large garrison of Washington to prepare for the onslaught. The city was guarded by some of the heaviest fortifications in the world at that time, ringed with earthen forts, all approaches guarded by hundreds of pieces of heavy artillery, manned by a well-trained garrison. Within days of a defeat at Gettysburg, the Union Navy could have rushed in thousands of additional reinforcements to the city from as far away as South Carolina. Thus Lee, after a Gettysburg victory, would have been in a grueling race with weather and time to try and seize Washington, and once his exhausted army arrived in front of the fortifications, they would have been forced to make a desperate frontal assault as risky as Pickett's charge. This, therefore, becomes our departure point for Grant Comes East. The writing of this book was far more complex than our first volume, Gettysburg. For now, we are truly in the realm of active history. It is no longer a question of simply taking the Gettysburg campaign and ever so subtly altering it. 
Now it becomes an open field of serious speculation of what would have come after Confederate victory at Gettysburg. As our title implies, much of the work focuses on Grant. Triumphant at Vicksburg, it is natural to assume that President Lincoln would have hastily summoned him east to restore the situation. Here, then, becomes the race on both sides. Can Lee seize Washington, or at the very least, secure a Confederate hold on Maryland and Baltimore, before Grant can build a new army in the east and challenge the Confederate victors of Gettysburg? There are so many potentials here for speculation, and we spent many an hour and many an email debating these questions. What about the draft riots in New York, which historically, after the Union victory at Gettysburg, threatened to derail the Union war effort? Would they not have been far worse after the news of defeat? What are the shattered remnants of the Union Army of the Potomac? Who would command, and what would be his motives for continuing the fight? And what of foreign policy? Would a Confederate victory at Gettysburg perhaps bring England or France into the fray? And finally, the subject of the root causes of this war. Gary Wills, in his brilliant work, Lincoln at Gettysburg, argues that the president in 1863 shifted the underlying cause of the war from constitutional questions to the far more fundamental issue based upon the opening statement in our Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. How might a Confederate victory at Gettysburg impact the African-American community, especially in Maryland, and what impact might that have upon the war? We tried as well to draw in many other questions and personalities of that time. Walt Whitman, a favorite poet of Bill Fortune's, will have his role, as will Judah Benjamin, the often neglected Confederate Secretary of State. Some of our favorite characters from the first book will be present as well, such as the very 20th century railroad man, Herman Haupt. We hope that in Grant Comes East, you will embrace our enthusiasm for active history, the rational exploration of the past, and the potential for how events might have evolved differently. We believe that such studies can serve several purposes, to exercise serious debate about history, to renew and invigorate the study of our past in an exciting manner, and, of course, as another of our heroes, J.R.R. Tolkien, once said, to offer you a rousing good tale. Audio Renaissance presents Grant Comes East, a novel of the Civil War, by Newt Gingrich and William R. Fortune, read for you by Boyd Gaines. Chapter 1, Cairo, Illinois, July 16, 1863. A cold rain swept across the river. To the east, lightning streaked the evening sky, thunder rolling over the white-capped Ohio River. The storm had hit with a violent intensity and for a few minutes slowed the work along the docks. But already sergeants were barking orders at the drenched enlisted men, while rain-soaked stevedores were urged back to their labors. Dozens of boats lined the quays, offloading men, horses, limber wagons, and field pieces. To the eyes of General Herman Haupt, commander of United States military railroads, the sight of these men was reassuring. They were veterans of the Army of the Tennessee, the victors of the great campaign that had climaxed ten days ago at Vicksburg, a victory that had come simultaneously with what was now seen as the darkest day of the war, the day Lee defeated the Army of the Potomac at Union Mills. The soldiers disembarking on the banks of the Ohio were lean and tough, 
their disciplined, no-nonsense carriage conveying strength and confidence, despite their bedraggled, tattered uniforms, faded from rainy marching in the muddy fields of Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, and Tennessee. Headgear was an individual choice. Most wore battered, broad-brimmed hats for protection against hot southern sun and torrential rains. Regulation field packs were gone. Most were carrying blanket, poncho, and shelter half in a horseshoe-shaped roll slung over the left shoulder and tied off at the right hip. Except for the blue of their uniforms, they looked more like their Confederate opponents than the clean, disciplined, orderly ranks Haupt was used to seeing in the East. Few, if any, would ever have passed inspection with regiments trained by McClellan. These Westerners were raw-boned boys from prairie farms in Iowa and Ohio, lumberjacks from Michigan, mechanics from Detroit, and boatmen from the Great Lakes and Midwest rivers. The unending campaigning had marked them as field soldiers. Spit and polish had long ago been left behind at Shiloh in the fever-infested swamps of the bayous along the Mississippi. They already knew their mission— Pull the defeated Army of the Potomac out of the fire and put the Confederacy in the grave. They came now with confidence, swaggering off the steamboats, forming into ranks, standing at ease while rolls were checked, impervious to the rain and wind, their calmness to Haupt's mind, a reflection of the man that he now waited for. He could see the boat rounding the Cape from the Mississippi River into the Ohio, the light packet moving with speed cutting awake, smoke billowing from its twin stacks, sparks snapping heavenward, carried off by the wind following the storm. The flag on the stern mast denoted that an admiral was aboard, 